Um, thanks for being here today. If you're brand new, my name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors um, at Journey, and I'm glad to be back with you today. Although I was thrilled to be able last weekend to be able to read the Apostles' Creed from Caesarea, just outside of Tel Aviv on the shores of the Mediterranean, because it was there not only that the Apostle Creed was shaped, but that the Apostle Paul would have been. As a matter of fact, I was standing in a plaza there, and right behind me, that all of that would have been inside Herod's palace 2,000 years ago. Right behind me was a courtyard where they believed the Apostle Paul twice came and shared his story, first with the Jewish rulers and then next with the Gentile rulers, um, and just said, this is who Jesus was to me. It was there where Cornelius and his family lived when God sent an angel to them to say, go to Joppa and tell Peter to come to you and tell you about Jesus. So to be able to read the Apostles' Creed in that place was just fascinating. And to be able to read those words about Pontius Pilate by that stone that said, from Pontius Pilate, dedicated to Tiberius Caesar, was just kind of surreal because you remember this is not just spiritual history, this is history. And if you take the Apostles' Creed, we're going to focus on four lines today, four lines of the creed that talk about three days in history. We're going to start with the line, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We're going to go through the line on the third day he rose again. So take and underline those words if you haven't already. That's going to be our emphasis today. But as we emphasize that, I want to say again what I just said, four lines of creed for three days of history. The first two lines of creed represent 10,000s, maybe millions of years. Two lines from creation all the way to the current. The next three lines represent 33 years of Jesus' life, talking about his birth through his ministry. So three years for 33 lines. If we go past the four lines we're going to study today, we've got three lines that cover from current to the end of the world. We've got four lines that represent 2,000 years of the church, and then we're only given two lines to describe all of eternity. But we see today four lines for three days of history which means it's at this point in the Apostles' Creed that the Apostles got a little long-winded, or these four lines covering three days are literally the centerpiece of the Apostles' Creed, and they're more important than anything else that was written. That's my belief today. I'm going to show you why. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Inside your bulletin, you'll find some notes where you can follow along. And we actually find the first version, one of the first versions of the Apostles' Creed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. We see the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth that if I could give you just a little bit of a quick history, what you need to know about Corinth is it was more like America than any other New Testament city. It was a city that was very secular. It was a city that was very global. Um, it was a city that had skeptics. It was a city that had atheism. It was a city that had religion. It was a city who had all kinds of cultural things going on. Um, and it was a city where Paul went and started churches. Uh, and they were churches that wrote letters to Paul and said, how do we do this? Um, okay, we're Christians now. What does Christian marriage look like? We're Christians now. What does Christian parenting look like? Uh, I'm a Christian, but my boss is a jerk. Like, should I quit my job or should I keep working for him? Um, I'm a Christian business owner. How do I treat my employees? Can I fire people who don't do a good job or do I just as a Christian, do I keep everyone? They wrote him all these like real life issues. We're Christians now what? So 1 Corinthians is a letter written in response to, hey, here's all your questions. Here's how Christians live their life. But Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, at the end of the day, it's all about the foundation of our faith. Like everything I've taught you begins at this foundation of the suffering, crucifixion, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul ends his book of just trying to teach practical Christianity by saying practical Christianity begins with an understanding of the suffering, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read verses 1 through 11 today. Paul said, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received and on which you've taken your stand. He basically says, I want to remind you what your Christianity is based on. I want to remind you what your Christianity is based on. Verse 2, by this gospel or this good news, by this foundation, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Paul says, if this isn't true, Christianity is not true. So what is the foundation of Christianity according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15? We pick up the first version of the Apostles' Creed. Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles and really don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe, that Jesus suffered, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he raised to life. Paul says, this is it. You stand on this, you're good. If you struggle to believe this, you're gonna struggle to live in the world of Christianity. Why is 1 Corinthians 15 so important? Let me give you just a few quick facts from Corinth. This message was first preached to Corinth around 50 A.D., so Paul said, when I came, I preached this message. When did Paul come? Sometime between AD 47 and AD 50, Paul went on his first missionary journey. He finds himself in Corinth. So around AD 50, or roughly 20 years after Jesus had been crucified, Paul was preaching about it. This letter that he wrote was written to Corinth around 55 AD, somewhere between 53 and 55 AD. Paul would leave the church, and over the course of three years, people were trying to figure out how to live their Christian life. After about a year and a half, they probably sent him a letter. He got the letter he wrote back and said, here's how you live your Christian life. And here's why this is so important. That means the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was cemented into the foundation of Christian belief, and it was widely circulated 15 to 20 years after it had happened. Which means Paul wasn't writing about history, he was writing about current events. And the people would have accepted it as a current event. You say, wait a minute, 15 to 20 years is not current events, 15 to 20 years is history, really? So let me ask you this, 9-11, that happened 16 years ago. Do you have to study a history book to remember where you were that day and what happened? Or is that a very current event in your life? See, 15 to 20 years is not history, that's a current event. The Columbine massacre, it was 18 years ago. Do you have to go consult a book? Have you never heard of that? Or is that a global event that everyone heard about? Paul was saying, this is a global event that happened in your lifetime. Most of the adults alive when Paul wrote this book, Paul said, this happened in your lifetime. The desert storm war that was broadcast on CNN that we all remember so well, that was 26 years ago. 
Do you remember the color of the lights flashing as the anti-aircraft fire went up? Do you remember the, the people announcing from Baghdad as the war developed in the background? Is that history or is that a current event? Ronald Reagan told Gorbachev, tear down this wall 30 years ago. And some of you can remember that like it was yesterday, but it was 30 years ago. The Challenger that exploded when I was in second grade sitting with my class watching it in the library, that happened 31 years ago. Do you have to go study NASA's files or do you remember that happening because it happened in your lifetime? For those of you who are older, not old, just older, like a little more mature in your scope of history, JFK was assassinated 53 and a half years ago. And when I talk to my mom and dad who are in their mid-60s, they remember it like it was yesterday. It, it wasn't history, it was a current event. So Paul writes to the Corinthians and he said, you need to understand this is a very current event in your lifetime. I'm not writing about history. I'm writing about a current event, a current event he's so sure of that he actually said, you can go check it out if you don't believe me. It would find its way into the Apostles' Creed, four lines of creed representing three days in history. And here's what Paul says you need to know about the foundation of the Apostles' Creed in Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. Number one, he said you need to understand that the Scriptures told us about it. You need to understand that the scriptures told us about it. Paul actually uses the phrase, according to the scriptures, twice to emphasize the roadmap he was using. Paul said, I know that Jesus is the Messiah because he did these things and the scriptures said he was going to do these things. Now, just so there's not any confusion, the scriptures are the Hebrew Bible or what Christianity calls the Old Testament. The scriptures were not the New Testament. The scriptures were not the stories of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we don't think the four biographies of the ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were even written by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So he wasn't talking about any Jesus history. He was saying the scriptures, the ancient scriptures given by the God of Israel that promised a Messiah, that promised a Savior to the world, they said the Savior would come and he would do this. He would suffer, he would be crucified, he would die, he would be buried, he would raise from the dead. The scriptures tell us that. The scriptures were the Apostle Paul's roadmap. He told the Corinthians a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that it was the scriptures that served as examples to people trying to follow Jesus, they were examples and warning for us. So Paul told people, go read the scriptures because when you read the scriptures, you'll learn how to interact with God. Paul would later tell Timothy, a young man he was apprenticing, that the scriptures were the things that could make you wise for salvation. He said, if you really want to know how to connect with God and to be saved from the world, you have to study the scriptures. So Paul said the scriptures tell us that Jesus would suffer, be crucified, he would die, he would be buried, and he would raise from the dead. And we have to remember, Paul was a verified scholar of the Scripture. When I say verify, he graduated from the top Ivy League school that had the top program in religion as a Pharisee. Paul was a verified scholar of the Scriptures. He was most likely a genius in the Scriptures. When we study the ancient Pharisees and Sadducees, many of them had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. I want you to think about that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Two of those are the most boring books in the entire Bible. They're like hard to read, much less memorize. And the Pharisees who would graduate from the Pharisaical school, they would have those scriptures memorized so well that we learned that in rabbinical training, one of the ways they would test each other is they would quote a verse of scripture, any verse of scripture in those five books, 
And you would have to be able to quote the verse before it or the verse after it to prove that you knew where that one was. And this was the game they would play. They would just quote a random verse. And if you knew it, you'd quote the one before it or the one after it until somebody could not quote one of the verses of these thousands of verses that were written. And some of them not even in narrative form that would have been easy to memorize. Paul was a genius in the Old Testament scriptures. And this genius of the scriptures say, when I study God's revealed truth to us, he says, look for a Messiah like this, that suffers, that's crucified, died, buried, and raises again. You say, where do we find that in the Old Testament scriptures? We find it pretty clear in Isaiah chapter 53. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen behind me. But Paul, who would have been a genius in the scriptures, who would have been a scholar, he would have, he would have had a doctorate from the Ivy League spiritual schools of his day. We find out he studied under the, the, the great Pharisee Gamaliel, our guide in Israel, who was not even a Christian this time around a few weeks ago, told us about the reputable kind of scholastic efforts of the school of Gamaliel. He quoted it, not even knowing Gamaliel was listed in the Bible as Paul's mentor. That kind of surprised him when we told him that. Paul said, as I study the Old Testament scriptures, and I know them as well as anyone, I see Jesus in Isaiah 53. Here's what Isaiah 53 says about the Messiah who will come. Isaiah writes this 600 years before the birth of Jesus. He said, the Messiah will be despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. He'll be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace will be on him and by his wounds will be healed. He'll be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But after he suffered, he'll see the light of life and he'll be satisfied. Isaiah, 600 years before the Messiah came, said, here's how you'll know who the Messiah is. He'll suffer. He'll be pierced and die. He'll, he'll die with the wicked between two criminals. But he'll be buried with the rich in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. But he won't stay there. He'll raise again. If you want to look for the Messiah, here is your roadmap. And Paul would often point back to the scriptures and say, I know this is Jesus because the scriptures tell me, but we got a problem. Because the earliest Hebrew Old Testament scriptures that we had until 70 years ago were written 900 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Which means you read Isaiah 53 and all of us would say, how could that be about anybody but Jesus? But a lot of skeptics would say, well, it was written after he died. Like they went back and they put that part in. Because the, the earliest Hebrew documentation we had of Old Testament scripture, one of them was written in the year 900 AD. Another one was written about 1000 AD. One of them was called the, the Codex Sinaiticus because it, it was a book that was in a monastery on Sinai. Another one was called the Codex Vaticanus because it was in a book in the Vatican two copies of the Hebrew Bible, but both of them written about a thousand years after Jesus lived. And they said, how do you know that Paul really knew that beforehand? Well, 70 years ago, a kid was running around in the Dead Sea region throwing rocks in a cave. And when he threw a rock in a cave, he heard something break and he went in and it would be the first of 11 caves that were discovered to hold what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were more than a thousand scrolls that were documented to have been written in the year 2 BC or 200 years, 200 years before Jesus would have been born. And you know what they found among the Dead Sea Scrolls written in perfect Hebrew? 21 copies of the book of Isaiah. And do you know what those 21 copies of the book of Isaiah says? This is actually a, 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 a photograph of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A 2,200-year-old document, that middle column is Isaiah 53. If you could read 
Hebrew, you'd be reading it right to left. And you would read what we just read out of our Bible, written 200 years before Jesus was born, studied in the school of the Pharisees, known by a man by the name of Paul who would say, I'm going to know who the Jewish Messiah is because he will suffer. He'll be pierced. He'll die. He'll be killed with the wicked, buried with the rich, but then he'll raise from the dead. Paul said, that roadmap shows me, the scriptures show me that Jesus is the Messiah. And the world who would say, oh, they just made it up, would go strangely silent when they discovered 200 years before Jesus all of these scrolls. 21 scrolls of the book of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, they found scrolls of every Old Testament book except the book of Esther because the Essene community who was writing them down hated Persia so much that they wouldn't write the book of Esther because it kind of mentioned her being the queen of Persia. Among the scrolls, the only Old Testament book that they found more scrolls of than Isaiah was the book of Psalms. They found 36 copies of the book of Psalms. And what does the Psalms say about the Messiah? David would say in Psalms 16, 9, and 10, written 200 years, just on the, the parchment that we can hold in our hands, this about the Messiah, that his body will rest secure because he won't be abandoned to the realm of the dead and the faithful one won't see decay. The Messiah would die, but he wouldn't stay dead, and his body wouldn't even be in the grave long enough to decay. Paul said, the scriptures are my roadmap to Jesus. The scriptures teach us about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah, which is why when Jesus began to teach his disciples, he said, let's look at the scriptures, because here's what they will say. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And today we quoted the Apostles' Creed that says, we believe in Jesus who will suffer, who will be killed, buried, but he will rise again. 2,000 years we, later, we celebrate that because several hundred years earlier, the scripture said that's the way it would happen. According to the scriptures, this was going to happen. But scriptures are for spiritual people. Scriptures are for religious people. What about the rest of the world? Do you know, number two, that secular history says the same thing about Jesus? Do you know that if you close your Bible and you don't use anything between Genesis and Revelation, do you know that if you put your Bible on a shelf and you don't use anything from Matthew to Revelation, that secular history, written by secular historians, records these seven facts about Jesus and his church? Like if there was no Bible... If we could just study Roman and Jewish history, do you know we would read these things about a man named Jesus? That there was a man named Jesus who was a Jewish teacher? That people believed he performed healings and exorcisms according to the historians of the day? That some people believed he was the Jewish Messiah? That he was rejected by the Jewish leaders and that they hated him? That he was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius? Pontius Pilate, who they said he was never the prefect of Judea until they found a stone that said Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. And they thought, shoot, okay, you know, we'll have to find another reason not to believe. <laughs> Do you know that history records despite his death, his followers claimed he was alive? And they spread that message and built a following from Palestine to Rome by 64 A.D.? And that history records in the followers of Jesus something that had never happened before in any other culture of the world. That all kinds of people and classes of people, both men and women, slave and free, young and old, Jewish and Roman, all worship Jesus as God. Do you know that if you study the writings of Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, the Talmud, Thallus, Phlegon, that these people will tell you these facts about Jesus? It's a historical fact. Not a spiritual fact, 
a historical fact that a teacher named Jesus lived. He drew a huge following through his ministry work and teaching. He was crucified by Pontius Pilate, and he inspired a global movement because his followers claimed that he rose from the dead. That's a historical fact. I actually had an atheist PhD professor tell me, Christian, anyone who denies that Jesus ever existed, you know, knows nothing about ancient Middle Eastern history. They've not read anything. I had a student several months ago that I was talking to. I said, Christian, how can, like, how can I know for sure that Jesus existed? And I checked my pockets and I pulled out a quarter. And I handed him the quarter and I said, who is that on the front of the quarter? And he said, George Washington. I said, how do you know? So I just, like, I just do. So how do you know? Have you met him? Well, no, of course I haven't met him. Have you talked to anybody who's met him? Well, of course I've not talked to anybody. Have you even been to Mount Vernon, his house in, outside of Washington, D.C.? Well, no. How do you know it's George Washington? He's like, I don't know. I just, like, I've learned about him my whole life. Like, I guess history teaches me. Had an atheist PhD said to deny the existence of Jesus would be as ludicrous as to deny the existence of George Washington. And he said Roman historians, 10 to 1, were more reliable than American historians because they were writing on stone that could never be erased, and they couldn't really change their story. And 2,000 years ago, these Roman and Jewish historians that didn't believe in Jesus and they'd never read the Bible were telling us there was this Jewish teacher named Jesus and his followers, because they thought he raised from the dead, was turning the world upside down. So it's a historical fact. But Paul said, I'm not giving you history, I'm giving you a present account. This is what I love from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul claimed you could actually go and speak to people who experienced the resurrected Jesus. He said they're still alive. Like Paul said, don't take my word for it. Go do your homework. Get on a boat, find a horse, find a donkey, head across to Israel, you'll find some people. Look what verse 6 says. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, After he appeared to the disciples... He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then Paul said, most of them are still alive. Go check it out. If you don't believe me, go check it out. I'm not writing history. This is a present account. Go check it out. So the scriptures tell us that Jesus was crucified, that he died, he was buried, and he raised again. Secular history tells us that Jesus was a Jewish teacher who was crucified by the Roman government and he was buried, but his followers were so sure of his resurrection that they spread that message all over the known world in a period of about 30 years. The message that Jesus was crucified and buried, but that he raised from the dead. But maybe the most compelling evidence for these four lines of the Apostles' Creed is the faith of the skeptics and the sorry Christians that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, as he walks us through this, these scenarios, he talks to us about the faith of skeptics and of sorry Christians. And listen, maybe you're in here today and you're a skeptic. As a matter of fact, if you are here today and you're a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here today because you deserve an opportunity to go read secular history and see whether or not I'm telling the truth. So I'm, here, I'm glad you're here today so you can take these little sermon notes and you can go read what these guys said about Jesus. Read, read their words and not mine. If you're a skeptic, I'm glad you're here today. And if we can answer any of your questions, please let us know. We, we would be honored to begin a discussion with you showing why we believe what we believe. But maybe you're here today and you're just a sorry Christian. Like maybe you're here today and at one point in life you followed Jesus really well, but if you were to be honest, you would say, if I look at the last week of my life, if I look at the last year of my life, I'm kind of a sorry Christian right now, not doing really well. If that's you, the resurrection of Jesus 
is for you. Paul lists three people who'd been changed by Jesus' resurrection. Did you see their names? One of them you might not have recognized, one of them you might not have known, and one of them was just a pronoun. But let's kind of read through them again so that we can circle them. First we see in verse 5 that after he raised, he appeared to Cephas. Circle the word Cephas. That's the Greek word for rock or Petros. We know that as Peter. So he says, okay, he, he raised from the dead, then he appeared to Cephas. Go down to verse 7. Then he appeared to James, circle James. James is Jesus' oldest little brother. And then in verse 8, Paul says, and last of all, he appeared to me. Circle the word me and write out there, Paul. So Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to three people after his resurrection and he changed them. Two of them were skeptics, James and Paul did not believe an ounce that Jesus was the Messiah. One of them was just a really sorry Christian. His name was Cephas. We know him as Peter. He had quit the ministry. After he kind of failed a time or two spiritually, he was like, I'm out. And he went back to his old job and just quit living for Jesus. But you need to understand the resurrected Jesus appeared to all three of these men while they were living in a state of unbelief. He didn't come to them because any of them got on their knees and said, God, reveal yourself to me. All three of these men were living in a state of unbelief when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. James had never believed. We read earlier in the ministry of Jesus that his brothers did not believe in who he was. James had never believed in him until he met the resurrected Jesus. Peter had quit believing. He got so freaked out by the night that Jesus was crucified that he denied him three times and then he thought, I'm worthless spiritually. Maybe you're here and you think you're worthless spiritually. The resurrected Jesus would tell you otherwise. And Paul was killing anybody that believed. Not only did he not believe, but he didn't want anyone else to believe either. And if they believed, he put them in prison or he killed them. Which shows us something really powerful today. Their belief did not draw Jesus to them. His resurrection drew them to him. See, I think a lot of times we think that, that Jesus in our life is because of how we believe. And if we believe well, Jesus is with us well. And if we're having a hard time, Jesus isn't with us. We think if we give well and serve well and read well and, and do things spiritually well that Jesus is with us. Jesus didn't come to these guys because they had earned the Jesus of the month award. Like they were not the disciple of the month club. In their total unbelief, Jesus appeared to them and the resurrected Jesus drew these unbelieving people to himself for absolute and total life change. Some of you are here and you say, I just don't know if I have enough faith for Jesus to reveal himself to me. You don't have to have faith for Jesus to reveal himself to you. You don't have to have belief. All you have to do is open your heart a little bit and be willing to look in a new direction. And what happens when we do that? Look at 1 Corinthians verses 9 and 10. Really powerful what happens when we meet the resurrected Jesus. Paul said, for I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. You know, this line, his grace was not without effect. It's a really powerful line. The word grace, if you want to circle that in your Bible, the Greek word for grace, there is the word charis, the word we get charity from. God's grace is a gift that we don't deserve, but he's willing to give us. Paul said, God's grace, this gift that God gave me of being able to see the resurrected Jesus, this gift that God is giving me of being able to hear about the resurrected Jesus, he said, this gift changed me. 
This gift changed me. As a matter of fact, when you meet the resurrected Jesus, you can't not change. I know that's not good English, but it is good preaching. When you meet the resurrected Jesus, Paul is saying you can't not change. The gift of the resurrected Jesus doesn't come without change. If you receive it, it's not without effect. It affects you. It impacts you deeply. So Simon and Saul become Peter and Paul. And little brother James becomes James the elder in scripture. We look at these three men, these two skeptics and one sorry Christian that met Jesus. And here's what we learn. When somebody meets the resurrected Jesus and receives his gift of life for them, it's never without effect. What happened to these guys? We see that two of them received new names. Man, a new name in the ancient world would mean a new identity. A new name in the ancient world would mean a new reputation. Like people saw me one way before I knew Jesus, but after I saw Jesus, like now everyone sees me totally different. A new name means a new identity. I used to think about myself this way. This is the stuff that I valued or didn't value in me. But once I met Jesus, I became so valuable in his sight that my identity changed. A new name means new character. And I used to respond this way to things, and now I respond this way. I used to act this way, but now I act this way. I used to do these things, but now I do these things. I used to talk that way, but now I talk this way. A new name means I'm a new person. Paul would tell this church at Corinth in his second letter that if anyone becomes a Christian, the old life goes away and the new life comes. It's like getting a brand new name. We see that Peter got a new courage. Peter, who was afraid to tell a teenage girl for fear that she would hurt him, that he knew Jesus would stand up on the steps before the most powerful rulers of the day and say, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Peter, who was so afraid of soldiers that he took a sword and tried to kill one, would lead the first Gentile Christian to Christ, who was what? A leader of soldiers in Caesarea. All of a sudden, he had this new courage. What fear is holding you back from the faith life that God wants you to have? What thing has God been speaking into your heart as a Christian that you would do if you just weren't scared to death? You know, we're starting a series after we get through Back to School Sunday, the last Sunday of August, called Fearless. We're going to study for four weeks the lives of Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel, and we're going to learn how to live with fear, with faith over fear. Because this time we stop being held back because we're afraid. When Peter met the resurrected Jesus, he stopped being afraid. And he had courage to do what God was calling him to do. And then all three of these men received a new mission. James was a nobody. He probably was a carpenter like his dad and his older brother. By the way, that word carpenter didn't even really exist in the Hebrew language. He was probably a builder. He was a stonemason, a stone builder. I was in Nazareth last week. They probably weren't building wooden tables and chairs. They were building stone houses. Jesus was a rough, tough stonemason. And his little brother probably was too. And then all of a sudden, he's called to lead the first and greatest church in the world, the church at Jerusalem. Why? Because he met the resurrected Jesus. See, when we, met, when we meet the resurrected Jesus, it can't not change us. And listen, if you say, well, I met Jesus and he didn't change me, you were not properly introduced. Say, oh, I know Jesus and he hasn't changed me. You do not really know Jesus if you've not experienced change. Because Paul said that introduction doesn't come without effect. It changes us. All because of one 
new life. New names, new courage, new mission. Why? Because of a new life. A life that had been crucified, a life that had died, a life that had been buried and descended to the dead is a life that on the third day rose again. And because of the resurrected Jesus, our names, our identities, our direction in life can be changed forever because of Jesus, because of the resurrection. Dr. John MacArthur, who's one of my favorite Bible scholars, I'll often go look at what he has to say about an issue so that I can understand it better, says this about Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected. He says, without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside other human philosophies and religious speculations. But belief in the resurrection, the truth that this life is only a prelude to the life to come for those who trust in Jesus Christ, That truth obliterates ridicule, prison, torture, and even death. No fear or dread in this life can quench the hope and joy of an assured life to come when we believe in Jesus. So do you believe in an assured life to come? Do you have hope in an assured life to come? Because Peter did not until he met the resurrected Jesus. And James did not. No hope, no future direction of an assured life to come until he met the resurrected Jesus. And Paul did not, until he met the resurrected Jesus. But when we meet the resurrected Jesus, everything changes now and for eternity. Have you met him? If not, can I give you a proper introduction today? Because when we read the first two sermons given in Acts, you say, how did the world come to faith in Jesus? The first two sermons in the book of Acts basically say this. You crucified Jesus, you buried him, But God brought him back to life. Believe in him. The end, let's pray. Like those were the first two sermons of the church. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish I'd have gone to that church. I'd already be eating lunch right now. Like they were just quick and easy. You crucified him. We buried him. God raised him. Follow him. That's it. As a matter of fact, theology can be summed up in Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll be assured of this life to come. Are you assured of that life to come? Man, don't leave here if you're not. Are you a Christian, but you've not been changed? It's time to have a proper introduction to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes this morning.